We turn together now in the Word of God to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Continuing in this series here that we began in the beginning of the year. We welcome again those who are visiting with us. Romans chapter 8. Hear now the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Groaning, that word brings a lot perhaps to our minds. Your stomach is groaning when you're really hungry or when we've eaten too much. We groan when we sit too long or we exercise too hard. When we sleep too little or sleep too much. When we get a test back that we weren't prepared for, kids, and we see the grade on it. When we get a bill in the mail that we weren't expecting. When you find out in a close basketball game that your star player has just fouled out with two minutes to go, you groan. Paul here uses this word to talk of an inward groaning that not only we, but the entirety of creation is experiencing. The question today for us is this, what makes us groan most deeply? Are we groaning about the things that God in his word is telling us to groan about? True sorrow and evil. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Romans 7, I long to be free from this body of sin and death. This passage, as one person says, tells us why the world is the way it is right now. It's profoundly relevant. And what we can expect in the world to come. Suffering now, glory then. We follow in the path of our Savior, and we look first then at the sufferings of this present evil age. Paul begins in verse 18, I consider. We have a Christian mind, a Christian worldview. As Christians, we think differently about everything. Why? C.S. Lewis, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. 
not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Beloved, everything in the universe, all the facts, all the events of the news need to be interpreted in light of God's special revelation, the scriptures, and in particular of the fact that God has disclosed himself finally and savingly in Jesus Christ. Consider, Paul says, consider where we live. As Derek Thomas reminds us, we are in two zip codes. As Christians, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now, but we live in the midst of this present evil age. The already, what God has done and is doing in Christ, and the not yet, the future inheritance to come. A part of that not yet has already broken in to the now. The resurrection of Christ, the outpouring of the Spirit, regeneration, that you are a new creation in Christ, your assurance as a Christian, but you're still living in a fallen and broken world. There's tension there. That's what Paul wants us to remember. Consider the world you live in, that it wasn't always this way. Consider that in the beginning, God, not protoplasm or aliens or crystals, God, God is self-revealed, eternal, self-existent. God isn't the force or soul of the universe. He's the maker and sustainer of the universe. All creation is dependent on him. So when Paul says creation here, he means everything seen and unseen. The billions of galaxies. The invisible world of angels. God spoke and created all of it. By his power, he upholds all of it. And in the beginning, it was all very good. It wasn't like it is now. There was no sin, no suffering. Nothing was lacking. God created Adam and Eve in his image to love and enjoy and commune with him. Adam and Eve were the glory of creation. They excelled everything else in creation in every respect. The Garden of Eden was a paradise. The tree of life was there as a sign and seal of immortality and heavenly glory which was attainable by Adam if he obeyed. The tree of life was a sacramental symbol. It focused Adam upward and forward to the consummation. But what happened? Adam and Eve sinned. Adam broke the covenant of works. He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now Paul says all creation is subjected to futility. It's ineffective. It doesn't attain the goal it has. The Vikings, it's futile to think they're going to win a Super Bowl. It's futile to think I'm going to get the ice off my sidewalk when it's 10 below zero. I can chip away, but it's not going away. Creation's destiny has been thwarted. It's not doing what it was intended to do. Bodies get sick. Death is real. Suffering is everywhere. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. And the creation is subjected, what does it say? By God. Subjected to futility. 
The Satan, the serpent is cursed. The woman is cursed. The man is cursed. The ground is cursed as a result of sin. What do we see around us? Again, this paradox, a world that's beautiful, that testifies to the glory of God, mountains and rivers, and a world where deadly earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis rage. Romans 8.22 speaks of the creation as like a woman about to give birth, groaning. There's a goriness to creation. The animals are suffering. Dogs get hit by cars and they wail. Creation shared in the judgment of God following Adam's sin. It shares in the pain of us as humans. It's in bondage, Paul says. The tree kids that you planted when you were five that now is bearing apples is productive for a while and fruitful. And then it will decline and decay and die, and decompose, decreation, change and decay all around I see. Entropy, everything is breaking down. The world is in bondage to corruption. As David Strain says, that's exactly what you see in the news every time you turn it on or look at your phone. On the streets and in the government, suffering, Disease, disaster, and death. Deep darkness in this state right now. The things that have been done, the policies that have been enacted, it's wicked, it's evil. Johnny Cash said, I love to tell the world that everything's okay, but I'll try to carry on off a little darkness on my back till things are brighter. I'm the man in black, right? It's a broken world. It's cursed. Sufferings, plural, are everywhere, Paul says, in this present time between the first and second comings of Christ. Suffering exists because of sin. Not a one-to-one correspondence. We know about that from the book of Job. But sometimes, yeah, a drunk will suffer a hangover. A criminal will go to jail. But we suffer because we are sinners. It's our condition. We live in a fallen world. Believers suffer because we identify with Christ. The church is being persecuted. And yet in the midst of that, the church is growing. One of our brothers who now lives in China is experiencing God blessing his church there. It is said that in 1970, 0.1% of the population in China professed to be Christians. Today, amidst suffering and persecution, no one knows the exact numbers, but some say 70, 80 million or more. A 60-fold growth in the number of believers in Christ in China amidst suffering. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Sufferings include worldly opposition to us because we're Christians. Trials and temptations from the sinful world around us and from our sinful flesh. We rejoice as a family. We saw this last week as a church. There's so much to give thanks for. Friendships, children, a good meal. 
a place that we can gather. But there is much that we weep together with as well. When one family of us suffers, one person, we all suffer. We need each other. We don't have a facade that says everything's okay. Yes, we have a joy in Christ as we suffer, but we have tears and sadness. And one thing as God matures us, as Drake prayed for, is that we begin to understand how to be sad together well. To lament, as the psalmist does. Some of us suffer far more than others. Paul himself, imprisoned, beaten, thirsty, anxiety for the churches, a thorn in his flesh that one man says was as if a demon was assaulting him and beating him with fists. Some of us suffer with depression and anxiety, chronic illness, mental illness, medically complex handicaps, dark nights of the soul, difficulties on the job, wondering Is this the job I really should have? Can I endure? Can I be faithful here? I'm feeling futile. I don't see productivity. There's stress. Stress at school and schoolwork and tests and exams and kids, things that are hard for you that might not be hard for your brother or sister, and you think, well, this is really difficult. I'm struggling. Broken relationships, families, My kids aren't walking with the Lord. Help. I have unmet desires. I have unwanted desires, ungodly desires. When I'm tired, I'm irritable. God, I don't want to be that way. When I'm under pressure at work, I get home and I'm defensive. I'm prickly. I'm not really worth anything right now to talk to anyone. I overreact to things. I take offense so easily. I give offense so quickly. I'm so insecure and self-promoting, just endlessly. There are others around me who suffer because of my sin against them. I'm not sleeping well. We've got a cold, and the cold has gone through the family, and we're sick for the second month in a row. That's real. Kids, that, that, that's tough. You miss church and school and birthday parties. Cancer's back. I don't know what's going to happen. Why do some have one illness after another? Why for some is the affliction new every morning and it gets worse every night? It reminds us our life is a breath like we read in James 4. And we wouldn't want to live forever in a world like this, would we? Suffering in our thinking. One writer in the last year wrote this book, A Christian. Why does God hate me, she says. It's not a thought I wanted to have in the middle of the night, but it was there. I couldn't sleep. For several months, the pain had been enormous. I didn't want to deal with it. I was done. Another sleepless night without relief. It's too much. What's wrong with me? Why does God hate me? Those thoughts raced through her head. She said she could have quoted a dozen Bible verses about God's love for her, And every rational part of her said, yes, God loves me, but my pain felt like proof that God's love was a lie. Perhaps you've had a lingering suffering over the death of a loved one. 
A 25-year-old man a number of years ago died in a mountaineering accident. His dad, a Christian professor, said this, Gone from the face of the earth. I wait for a group of students to cross the street, and suddenly I think he's not there. I go to a ball game and find myself singling out the 25-year-olds, but none of them is he. In all the crowds and streets and churches and rooms and libraries, I'll never find him. Only his absence. Silence. Was there a letter from Eric today? What would Eric say? When would he call? Silence and absence. When we gather now, there's always someone missing. His absence as present as our presence. His silence as loud as our speech. Still five children, but one always gone. When we're all together, we're not all together. Never again in this life to be together. The rest of our lives we live without him. Only our death will stop the pain of his death. If he was worth loving, he's worth grieving over. Suffering that can't be chased away with a smile. This life is a constant and continual death. For many right now, life stinks. It's a mess. It's beyond fixing in this world. There's no resolution to it. There's so much suffering. You might be on the hill difficulty, the slew of despond, in the battle of Helm's Deep, and you're groaning. That's what Paul is saying. There's a difference between groaning and grumbling. Grumbling is complaining. The Chick-fil-A took too long. I was waiting in line forever. Groaning is lamenting things that are not as they should be. We're supposed to groan, loved ones, because we recognize how often we give in to temptations to seek in created things what we can only find in God. We use God's good gifts to escape rather than thank him. We groan because things are not as they should be. We groan because we are not as we should be. When we forget that this is a time of groaning, what happens? It leads to frustration, disappointment, despair, discontentment, cynicism, bitterness, numbness. This is not the glory time. There will always be a fly in the ointment. Things are never going to be perfect in this world. It'll always be out of joint. We suffer. Why? Because we're identified with Christ. One verse earlier. Paul says, remember, consider who you are. Consider the gospel. Jesus said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Christ must suffer and then be glorified. They didn't get the idea. They wanted glory right now. Christ suffered. Why? Not for his sins, but for ours. The just for the unjust. He endured the cross to bring us to God. He bore the curse, the wrath, the judgment as our substitute in our place. And now when we suffer, it's not because God's angry with you. Your suffering is not God punishing you. 
Your suffering is not God teaching you a lesson. You suffer because you belong to Christ. God brings us to repent of sin, yeah. Our suffering reminds us to long for glory. But you suffer because you belong to Jesus. You are his bride, sheep in his flock, stones in him, the temple, his body. The body goes where the head goes. Suffering, then resurrection. Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Second, what does glory look like in the age to come? We're reading a book to our children right now that is about trains, boxcar children. Anybody read that to their kids? And right now they're on one of these cabooses and there's a mystery with the caboose. Well, in some ways, Paul says, think about this passage, this life and eternity like a train. Christ is the engine. The rest of the cars will follow. Where Christ goes, we in union with him go. Suffering now. Glory in the age to come. Paul wants you to think about glory. What is glory? It's weighty. It's solid. It lasts forever. It's beautiful, bright, blessed, majestic, eternal, immortal, incorruptible. Words can't describe it. The glory that Isaiah saw in the temple that we read earlier today. The glory that Paul saw when he was caught up to the third heaven and saw things that he couldn't even begin to describe to us. Christ's sufferings are done, loved ones. He's not some dead guy. He's the living and resurrected Lord. That changes everything. His sufferings have given way to heavenly exaltation. He defeated sin and Satan. He plundered Satan's goods. He rose. He's reigning. His glory is a present reality, unseen right now by us, except as the word, the sacrament, and the spirit go forth. There you see it. Jesus himself, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He's crowned with honor and glory. All things are under his feet. There is the joy that he brought many sons to glory, his church, his children, boys and girls, men and women. Christ is the engine. All of creation follows. Paul says, verse 18 and 19, Creation has an eager longing. Kids, if you like right now, standing up on your tiptoes and looking. Maybe you go to the state fair and you want to see the big pig, but you're not quite tall enough, so you leap up there and stand and try to see what that pig looks like. That's what creation is like, personified. On tiptoes, head lifted up, waiting for something that is so beyond what we can experience in this world, a renewal, a rebirth. Creation will be born again. One day there won't be flus and cancers. One day there won't be evil and wicked men prospering. One day this world will be made new. 
a physical new heaven and new earth. When will that happen? Do you remember when Jesus is before the high priest, bloodied, beaten, suffering, obeying the law, fulfilling all righteousness for you and for me? You will see the Son of Man in glory coming on the clouds of heaven with power. Jesus will come back. It will be sudden. It will be visible. It will be triumphant and glorious and universal and majestic. And if you're not a Christian, know that Jesus says he will come. Are you ready to meet him, trusting him by faith? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Many don't want to do that. They say, well, I'll sign up for Christianity if I get all the good stuff, health, wealth, easiness. Jesus says, suffering now, dying to self, dying to sin, trusting that Christ loves you and paid fully for your sin and accomplished your salvation. Are you ready to meet him? When he comes, there will be a revealing of the sons of God. The curtain will be pulled back. Everything that's fake will be seen for what it is. Only by his grace can any of us stand. It'll be revealed who we are. That we, in Christ now, by grace, have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the first part of the harvest in the Old Testament. A sign that more was coming. Even now your life is hidden, Christ. Even now the hope of glory is yours. You haven't tasted it fully yet but it has your name on it. It's like a long engagement. That's what this time is right now. You are the bride. Christ is the groom. He longs for the union to be complete with you, his people. You're a people of hope. On the day of Christ's return, on that day, there will be what Paul says, the redemption of our bodies. When a loved one dies... It's not that they passed away. That's a common phrase. Some people think that that came out of Christian science. Hard to know exactly. But the Bible says death. Why? Because death is brutal. Death is the curse. Death is the last enemy. We don't just pass into something. As a Christian, when you die, you go to glory. You're not just passing away. You're going to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you take your last breath and I take mine, you will immediately be with Jesus. You will go from the land of the dying to the land of the living. You will be more alive than you are now. Your soul will be ravished with bliss, the beatific vision of God. Awaiting the redemption of your body. You've been to graveside services, many of you. You've seen the coffin of your loved one lowered into the ground. Ash, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This body is dead. But we commit the body to the ground in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection on the last day. Of the life of the world to come through our Lord Jesus Christ. At whose second coming 
in glorious majesty to judge the world, the earth, the sea will give up their dead. The corruptible bodies of those who sleep in him. Your body sleeps in him. Your soul is immediately present with the Lord, not asleep. Your body will be changed. It will be made like his glorious body, according to his mighty power by which he is able to subdue all things unto himself. A new heaven and a new earth. You will work and you will play. You will compose music and you will write books, says Derek Thomas. There will be dolphins and whales. It will be this world recreated and glorified. Everything you enjoy now, then, but you'll be with the Lord. So it'll be perfect enjoyment. More is gained in Christ than was lost in Adam. You will be like Christ in glorious majesty. All creation will reflect that beauty. Jesus doesn't bring you back to Eden. He brings you to the tree of life. Christ's glory is a glory not just revealed to you, verse 18, but in you. God's promise of glory is not accept Jesus to stay out of hell. God's plan isn't just to save you from hell. It is to make you glorious like Christ. How does that impact your life now? We're groaning now in the hope of glory then. It's a hope. You can't see it, but it's real. It's promised. It's longed for. It's certain. Patience doesn't mean passivity or inactivity. Onward and upward, Narnians. Press on, Emmaus Road. Keep on keeping on. We have desires that this world doesn't satisfy. Every time you and I groan, we realize we're made for another world. Non-Christians live for the weekend. God says your desires are not too strong, they're too weak. C.S. Lewis, we're like the child who's playing in the mud. His parents say, we've got a holiday away in Florida. Your sandcastle in the living room in the middle of 20 below weather in Minnesota is a fun thing. But that's not Florida with sunshine and dolphins. We're far too easily pleased, Lewis says. We're not longing for what's good. We're longing for glory. We're made for glory. We're drawn onward to a better world. So what does that mean? Don't lose heart, Paul says. We don't obsess over our sufferings. We don't turn inward continually on ourselves. It hurts, but by the Spirit, the pain burns the superficiality out of us. We begin to care more about the right things. We begin to see how sweet God is. We love this life as anyone does. In fact, as Christians, you should love this life more and in the right way than a non-Christian. It's a good gift of God. You're seeing goodness in the land of the living. We sang about that in Psalm 27. But God is also freeing us from slavery to this passing present evil age. The Holy Spirit is helping us press on with rugged endurance The best is yet to come. We don't panic over disappointments in life. They come, but we rejoice in the hope of God. 
The night of sin is almost over for you, Emmaus wrote. It'll be worth the wait. When this hope has a hold of your heart, we keep our head up. God's grace keeps us pressing on. I was skiing with a friend this week, a cross-country skier. He said, your form, your head is down. So you're not breathing as well. Keep your head up. Look ahead. Stand up straight. That's the picture here. Why are you driven? And how are you motivated? By the glory of Christ. This glory is not far off. You and I are one heartbeat away. If the worst should happen, when we die, we go to glory sooner. The world says that's the worst thing. The Bible says we're wasting away outwardly. Inwardly, we're being renewed. These afflictions are momentary and light. Paul said that. Not that they're not real, but you put them on a scale between this present suffering and the glory to come. It's like a feather. It doesn't even move it. Here is the weight of glory, Paul says. Everything here is like dust compared with the weight of glory. Life is short. It's frail. But what no eye has seen and no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared something for you who love him. You look not to what you see around you, but to the unseen. Everything here is passing away. It's transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. This promise helps struggling Christians. It doesn't bring glory to you now in the sense of health, wealth, prosperity. Everything's perfect. It's not that at all. It helps you live by faith, with patience. You're groaning. Your heart is aching. That's the sign of the Spirit living in you. Dear Christian, look to Christ. He's a faithful and merciful high priest. Remember remember his heart toward you of mercy and grace. You're in union with him. You died with him. You were raised with him. Pray that he would strengthen your faith to see the glory that awaits, giving you peace in the storm, comfort in the midst of fear, contentment and patience, Even as you eagerly cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus, you are groaning in hope of glory. Don't forget this. One day you will see this glory. You will share in the glory of God. Not just seeing what's beautiful, but participating in it. That is your future inheritance. God is your reward. Emmaus wrote, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. Let's respond.